Listener Production. When a drought takes hold there, it's it's almost like a creeping cancer. It starts to disable the community bit by bit by bit by bit and grows. It was pure dust here. It decimated our herd, it decimated our income, our lifestyle, and almost drove us to the point of bankruptcy. Cynthia McDonald's experience of drought is sadly not unique. Most farming families supporting Australia's $76 billion agricultural industry will be able to tell you all about the devastating impact of drought, like how in 2019 Stanthorpe, a small town in the southern downs close to where Cynthia lives, ran completely dry. It was awful. It was awful to watch a community at its knees. Dams across the whole southern downs, which once sustained a thriving cattle, sheep and horticultural industry, turned into dust. Water had to be trucked in and residents had to choose between themselves and their livelihoods. There was no feed on the ground. There was, uh, I had cattle dying on a daily basis. I think the worst day I dragged four into the cemetery. So you've got the depletion of of what was, you know, your base herd. You lose bloodlines that have been sometimes there and developed over 50 years to 100 years within families. Your children are, are living and seeing this every single day and you're living it as a person. Towards the end of the millennium drought, we went to a fairly remote, really small town in rural Victoria we spoke to the school principal, who was also the footy coach. He'd been coaching a group of about seven or eight-year-old kids, and it started to rain. They were really terrified and had no idea what was happening because for their whole life, it, it hadn't rained in that town. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty mind-blowing, pretty hard to imagine being, you know, a seven, eight-year-old kid and not having had that experience before. Throughout her PhD, examining the links between mental health and drought, Dr Emma Austin heard hundreds of stories just like this. Now, that same research is being used in the development of an employability and wellbeing toolkit, part of the Commonwealth-funded Drought Resilience and Adoption Hubs, the Centre for Water, Climate and Land at the University of Newcastle, is developing in partnership with Southern Queensland University. To be resilient, this requires the capacity to be able to adapt and sometimes quite quickly. You can't do that. It's very difficult to do that if, if your well-being or mental health is, is low. Right? So this, this link between mental health and adaptive capacity, you're getting people in rural communities getting hit with all these suggestions about how they can adapt to climate change or adapt to drought and whatnot. But it's no good if they don't have the headspace to, to even you know, think about tomorrow. Associate Professor Anthony Kime is a hydroclimatologist and director of the Centre for Water, Climate and Land. Together with Emma, his team takes a multidisciplinary approach to drought preparedness and resilience, collaborating with the university's Priority Research Centre for Frontier Energy Technologies and Utilisation to progress the advancement of other innovations that can help with drought resilience, like the Hydro Harvester, a technology capable of making fresh drinking water from thin air. 
These centres are based at Newcastle's Institute for Energy and Resources. Their mission is to support research that helps meet the vital resource needs of future generations. It's a way that we can harvest the water that's in the air and generate drinking water. If we could design this hydro harvester that can produce water just from the atmosphere, it can take a lot of that stress away. So if we can have a source of clean drinking water at a reasonable cost, it's only going to be a benefit for drought-affected communities, regional communities that are out there. We want tried and tested tools that are practically useful and have been demonstrated to benefit in real life. Hi, I'm Shani Wellington. I'm a Wandi Wandian and Geringer woman, and I'm from the University of Newcastle. This is The Minds Changing Lives. I remember one, one significant event as a child was, is burnt into my memory, and that was of a, a calf that was being born, and the dingoes ate the calf as it was coming out of the actual cow, so we had to go and fetch the, the calf, the dead calf, and try and save the mother in between. Wow. So, uh, and I was quite frightened as a child because there was a lot of blood, obviously, with what was going on. But that's certainly something that's etched into my memory from when I was very, very young and definitely no different to what we we saw here a few years ago, but in fact worse. Droughts will come and go and in fact we're on the fringe of another one right now if we don't start to get some rain out here. Now a councillor for the Southern Downs Regional Council, Cynthia McDonald's roots run deep in cattle farming, growing up on her grandfather's farm in Gloucester. Even after a military career, her unwavering commitment to farming led her to the Southern Downs, where she began a farm of her own. When the 2019 drought took hold, she emerged as a fierce advocate for farming families determined to preserve their legacies. The toll that this one took, uh, not only on just individual farmers, but their families as a whole, if you go to the boarding schools and you ask them at the depths of that drought how many of their children were pulled out because of, A, financial stress, B, because they physically needed those children at home to assist with the feeding of the cattle. If you think about it, you've got children that were, or teenagers in particular, taken out of their schooling environment and it's nearly unheard of. It's something that you would have heard of 50 years ago or 60 years ago, but there was nothing these families could do. We can't stop drought. It's Australia, right? We're always going to have droughts. We can't stop droughts from happening. And when you're in the farming or rural community, a lot of income depends on productivity of the farming sector. So I'm Anthony Kime. I work at the University of Newcastle in hydroclimatology. So hydroclimatology is a merge of the two fields, hydrology and climatology. So hydrology is everything to do with water, water resources, water availability, what happens when rain hits the ground. That's hydrology. Climatology is what causes the rain to happen, what causes the weather, what causes uh, storms, things like that. Hydroclimatology is the mixture of both of those things. I hate to go so baseline, but can you talk us through what drought is? Is it, you know, is it just the absence of rain? What is the technical kind of definition and what causes drought here? Ultimately, drought is the absence of water. 
right? Sometimes rain, sometimes water in the river, whatever it is. So ultimately that's, that's what it is. Technically there's five main categories of drought. So there's the meteorological drought, which is lack of rain or increased evaporation. You've got your agricultural soil moisture drought, which is lack of moisture in the ground. Then you've got hydrological drought, which is lack of water in the rivers and the dams and the reservoirs. Then you've got ecological drought, which is the drought that goes long enough that you actually see decreases in vegetation and, and things like that. And then you've got the socioeconomic drought, which is the drought that goes long enough that you, you actually see reduction in productivity, mm. so, social impacts, um, financial impacts and so on. They ultimately all start from yeah, lack of water, which is usually in Australia lack of rain. What causes a lack of rain? Well, Australia is an island continent. We're surrounded by oceans that have their own processes, large-scale climate modes that determine the weather we experience. And many of these processes happen simultaneously. The El Nino Southern Oscillation is probably the most familiar example. It's the warming and cooling of the tropical Pacific Ocean. The El Nino phase of the two- to three-year cycle typically leads to below-average rainfall for most of us in eastern Australia. The Interdecadal Pacific Oscillation, or IPO, is another important influence. The IPO is the warming and cooling of the whole of the Pacific Ocean over a 20- to 30-year period. IPO, the Interdecadal Pacific Oscillation, when you're in the positive phase... El Nino events are more likely, right? So you get an increased likelihood of El Nino events, which for Australia means increased likelihood of droughts, but not just for a year or two, for a couple of decades. Wow. Right? So this this is the concern. It's not just potentially not just a one or two year drought. You're talking about a multi-year drought. You can have the situation, and and we've seen this, where there's announcements made that the drought is finished, Mm. which might be true for the meteorological drought because the rain happened. Large parts of particularly rural Australia coming out of the agricultural drought or the hydrological drought happens months or sometimes years after the meteorological drought has broken. You see the devastating pictures and footage around of starving sheep and starving cattle because, and you know, trying to eat dirt basically, because this is an example of an agricultural drought. You know, there's not enough rain, there's not enough moisture in the soil to grow even basic pasture but you've already got a couple of hundred cattle, they have to eat something. And so then you get this really devastating situation where farmers have to, you know, slaughter, slaughter their cattle, which again comes back, this, this is, has to have an impact on mental health. The suicide rates were, were quite, quite high during, during that period because of people suffering from financial stresses, not knowing how to get help not knowing how to get assistance, who to turn to. Male farmers are extremely proud. They don't tend to talk a lot about what they're going through and, or how much pain their family's in. But mm-hmm. the wives will come to you on the side and say, look, we can't flush our toilet, we have no water. And it sits very much in the minds of the people in this, this region because the, the impact was so harsh. I can remember going to John D. Abattoirs and the CEO said, Cynthia, we've got 10 months and counting, and if we don't get water, we'll have to close. Mm. So when you start looking at the implications on massive businesses that employ, are employing up to, you know, 400 to 500 people, mm. then you start to realise, well, that's 400 to 500 families 
One of the studies that we did looked particularly at drought-related stress just in farmers. Mm. So not only farmers experience impacts of drought, but it's important to look at smaller groups as well as the whole community. And we found that farmers that were younger, so 18 to 35, and who lived and worked on their farm and who were more remote, so in more remote areas of New South Wales and who were experiencing financial hardship, they were more likely to have reduced wellbeing Mm. and more likely to experience what we termed as drought-related stress. This is Dr Emma Austin. The employability and wellbeing toolkit she and Anthony are developing has one central goal, to bolster the mental resilience of farmers while, at the same time, diversifying employment opportunities when traditional farming methods are off the table. And so the idea about diversification of income, diversification of employability is if you're in a year or a a several year period where farming is not feasible or not a good idea, having something to fall back on, right? Some some other skill set that you can use to, to top things up until the climate situation shifts again and you can put yourself back into a profitable enterprise. What the toolkit's looking at doing is linking people in rural communities and particularly farmers in with services that already exist mm. that can help them upskill and benefit their employability while um, maintaining good well-being and mental health. So um, we're working with the University of Southern Queensland and it'll be an online tool but also be able to be disseminated through printed materials, for example. And also, I mean, not everyone in rural communities has internet access mm. or reliable, so we're making sure there are different um, methods of getting that information out there. It's about bringing people together and people having a chat and those incidental conversations. So they mm. might not be a psychologist or even a GP, you know, in the towns. And often they're non-medical people, so it might be the vet or the financial counsellor, might be the first person that someone opens up to. Mm. So it's really empowering those people to have the education and to have this toolkit where they can pass on other services to people that might just need a bit of a hand. So what we're doing is we're, we're co-designing that from the initial stage, so with the small stakeholder group to say, hey, this is what we're trying to do. What do you think is the best way of doing it? So we do that. We're going to come up with a, a beta version, a draft version. We're going to road shop that, so road test it around the communities and so invite individual farmers, community groups to, to have a test of that. What, what's good, what's bad, what's missing, what's unnecessary. Then we go back and we, we tweak it, we come back again. So we're doing that. It's two or three iterations of that. So the idea is we get to the end product and, and people are more likely to um, adopt it because they've actually had input into the mm. development of it and confirm that it is actually useful for them to solve the challenges that they're facing. The Employability and Wellbeing Toolkit is just one of the many services being developed by the Drought Resilience and Adoption Hub, and there are eight of them across Australia. Each is led by different universities that have expertise in location-specific issues. Managing anything to do with climate risk is is really tricky in a place like Australia mm-hmm. because the the impact of the weather impact, the impact of climate variability, impacts of climate change differ so much from location to location. The objective of the hubs is to basically bring two-way, it's to bring the latest science and evidence to end users to help them make the best use of the best science and the best evidence. But another example is 
various research that's um, suggesting drought-resistant, drought-tolerant crops and so on. So farmers can get involved with trials of that and monitoring. At innovation, innovation side. Yeah, yeah. And so there's another one, um, rainfall harvesting. The big important thing about the drought hubs as well is that if a farmer does have an idea or a problem that they think could benefit from some research expertise, they can pitch it. They can yeah. pitch that and, and we can say, oh, no, that's that's way too tricky. Um, well, no. <laughs> yeah. Or no, that's a great idea yeah. and here's some science you can put around that existing science or no, we don't have a solution for that, but here's some things we could investigate. Mm. So, again, putting the end user in contact with the relevant research group, research organisation, things like that. So it's like a matchmaking. The hubs are like a matchmaking exercise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This collaborative approach utilised by the hubs is the same approach taken by the Centre for Water, Climate and Land. After the millennium drought, a drought that lasted almost 10 years, the worst on record for Southeast Australia, something became clear. That hydrology, meteorology, land surface processes and climatology don't exist in a vacuum. To make real change in drought-affected communities, you must look at the issue holistically, integrating expertise across the whole science spectrum. One of the primary outcomes is research. So we're we're constantly doing new science. The science is is constantly evolving. So we we do innovative research in the centre. But that's that's just one part of it. Another huge part of it is taking the insights from our research, other people's research, and applying them in practice. Right, so actually solving real-life problems based on evidence and insights that are coming from the science. It's not just a research centre. It's designed to do research, but more importantly, it's designed to actually have an impact in the real world, so yeah. to deal with real-world problems. And, and part of that is making people aware of the research that's happening in places like universities and academic literature and things like that because the people that are facing problems associated with drought, for example, so people actually facing the problems and more importantly, the people developing policy and whatnot to deal with those drought mm. impacts, they're not necessarily directly in touch with the research or the academic literature. So the, the other role the centre plays is sort of knowledge broker type Of course. Role. Yeah. And it's, and it's multidisciplinary and it's science and it's practice and so all these sorts of things. So we, we can work with people from all the different fields that you need to work with to deal with the problems of things like drought, right? Mm. Because it's a multi, multi-faceted thing. Hi, I'm Dr. Priscilla Tremaine and I'm a research associate at the University of Newcastle. I work in the chemical engineering department at the uni and I'm part of the Frontier Energy Technologies and Utilisation Centre. So that centre is headed by Professor Badad Mogtideri. And what we're doing there is really trying to develop low emissions technologies, so to reduce our carbon footprints, and also to develop technologies to make cleaner and more sustainable energy. Tell us a bit about what what is chemical engineering and what does that involve? So chemical engineering, it sounds really technical, but there's another word that people use to describe chemical engineers and it's process engineers. So essentially what we do is design and optimise processes. If you think of a margarine factory, let's just say, So all of the processes that go through that from all of your feedstocks that get fed in to make the margarine through to the packaging it into a container, we look at designing that whole process and looking at how can we reduce our energy consumption, how can we reduce our um, 
carbon emissions and how can we do it at the cheapest price. So essentially, a chemical engineer looks at a process and tries to make it the most efficient, most in terms of energy, cost, and also emissions. So you're just out here refining things. That's exactly it. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny because when I think of chemical engineer, my brain automatically goes to lab coat. Yeah. So at the uni, we definitely do put on a lab coat because we start small. We look at things at basically a microscopic level and then we move through to doing things at the really large scale. So looking at coal processing plants at uh, solar panel installations and wind farms. So we can go from like that small molecular level all the way through to Bigger the picture. big stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Dr. Priscilla Tremaine is currently working on the hydro harvester. You might remember hearing about this from season one. It started as a pet project, but now, thanks to the Future Drought Fund, they are in the process of building a 1,000-litre-per-day unit which will be constructed, operated and running in November. So I think I can sort of draw it back to how it works in terms of humidity in the air. So we all know, like, when you go outside on a hot, humid day, the air feels really thick, right? Yeah. So the reason it feels thick is there's a lot of moisture in the air. So we really harness that concept when we sort of uh, designed the hydro harvester is how can we take that moisture out of the hot air? Because hot air actually can hold a lot more water than cold air. Because you notice if you go outside in the winter, the air feels really thin, you don't really sweat at all because cold air can't hold any moisture. So essentially with the hydro harvester, we want to make hot air really humid and then turn that into drinking water. But how do we do it? Mm. So have you ever been inside on, it's it's a winter's night, you go to sleep, you wake up in the morning and then there's all this dew on the inside of your window? For sure. Yeah. So that's the principle of how we turn the vapour into liquid. So hot air, when it touches a cold surface, so your windows are cold because outside it's very cold, the vapour will turn into liquid. So essentially that's what we do. We get hot air, we contact it against a cold surface and we can produce drinking water. How could we put the harvester to work? Does it work for drier air than than with less moisture? So the thing is, a lot of the places where we have drought are really hot. Mm. And so everybody thinks of them as dry. But like I said before, hot air holds a lot of moisture. So although it might not feel as thick as in Darwin where it's really tropical, right. there's still a lot of water in that air. So we can still pass the same air through our hydro harvester and still collect water. We might just need to run it for a little bit longer time. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. so low humidity just means we're yeah. going to switch it on for, for a, a little bit, bit longer. longer. That's it. So rather than running it for an hour, we might need to run it for two hours. If I were to put on my dryer for, <laughs> for two hours instead of one, it might be not economically the mm-hmm. best move. My partner might be a little bit upset with me. How economic would mm-hmm. the hydro harvester be? So the good thing about it is that when we're running it for, say, two hours, the only thing that's running is a fan. So we're blowing a fan over these special particles that are inside of our hydro harvester. So the energy consumption for that part of the process is minuscule. It's almost negligible compared to when we then heat up our particles to generate our water. So basically, wherever you put it, the energy consumption is going to be the same because that time that we have to run it is when the smallest amount of energy is consumed. We're we're looking at 
our estimates at the moment are between five and ten cents per litre is how much it's going to cost right. in terms of costing and electricity. So it's it's quite promising, but we we need to prove it essentially in these coming this coming year. And obviously, it's a priority for the government, and they've mm-hmm. identified this as something worth investing in. Mm-hmm. As someone in the industry, why do you see this as a mechanism that's that's needed by society? Well, just in Australia. So I know in the 2019 drought, I think it was, mm-hmm. there was communities that were trucking water in to provide drinking water for the local community. So they completely ran out of water and they needed to get trucks to drive in to provide their water. So if we had one of these hydro harvesters in their community, they can be producing drinking water all year round and provide that to the community. Um, Also, farmers could essentially put these on their properties. They have their own source of drinking water. It could be an emergency supply for cattle or farms. Um, It just provides so many options in that sense to just take the stress away. I know I've got a clean source of water because that's, I think, half the problem. There are bores around, like out in regional Australia, people get um, water from these bores and wells but often they're contaminated with metals and Mm. other salts that make it undrinkable. Or if you drink it, you're going to get sick. So I know there are remote communities that will drink the bore water and essentially become quite ill and it leads to health implications down the line. So if we can have a source of clean drinking water at a reasonable cost, it's only going to be a benefit for drought-affected communities, regional communities Mm. that are out there. Without a doubt, the the amount of stressors that are placed on farmers during these times, financially, emotionally, I mean, emotionally for my husband and I, it was even difficult to go outside and just look at the dust bowl that we called a farm. Mm. (laughs) That's what it was. It was a dust bowl. There was nothing green. We didn't see a lawn for for two years. We never saw grass on our lawn. Um, What you're talking about um, with the hydro harvester, this type of innovation and technology is extremely important for us moving ahead as, as, um, you know, an agricultural region. I think it could be a game changer for areas like this. If you can manufacture water for for five cents a litre and it's possible, look, I think it's fantastic. You know, looking to the future... We know we've got a big year ahead. Well, what are your hopes? Oh, I really hope so. The plan is to initially run this 1,000 litre per day unit that we've got at the University of Newcastle for the first six months. Then we're talking to a regional New South Wales Council and we're going to see if we can install it in their community and produce drinking water there. So it would be really great if we could install it there, show the community that we can produce this drinking water just from the air and just get some positive energy towards the the concept and get some get some momentum. Yeah, that's it, exactly. Yeah. Some momentum towards the idea so that we could potentially roll this out in the future because that's essentially what we want. We want to commercialise this idea so that it can be available to all these different communities. So since the Millennium Drought ended, we've had large areas that have experienced really bad flooding. There's been bushfires in that. 2019, 2020 Mm. year and, you know, recently mouse plague. So it's really important to look at these compounding extremes and events 
And something that's really come through in our research over the last 13 years or so is this concept that it's not just drought. And I guess that comes back to things like we talked about, the financial impacts and Mm. whatnot that can't just look at drought in isolation. And that's what's really important is these compounding extremes and impacts. So we know there's some research going on and we know that the way they interact and having these cumulative impacts is really important. We need to tease that out. And, you know, things like the global financial crisis also impacted, also impacts the way people can handle other climate extremes. The whole um, topic of compounding climate extremes is really in, in its infancy. And so there's, there's almost nothing known about the impact of compounding climate extremes on mental health of rural, rural Australia. So that's another thing that we're looking at. And Anthony, you know, we're talking about farmers and they really are just like the backbone of, of a lot of the work that we do in this country. How does it feel to be working in a space to, to help these real people on the ground? Yeah, well, it feels good. It, it, and it, it feels good to think that we're trying to get there. But what will feel even better is if at the end of this we actually do see some uh, real-life success stories. And, mm. you know, the measure of that will be when we go into the next drought because it's not if, another drought will happen, that people actually come and use these products that are coming from our project in the hub but the other projects in the hub and come out of the drought or get through the drought in a lot better way than what they have through previous droughts. So this is this would be what is counted as a success for me is if when the next drought happens that we get, you know, a lot less people in financial distress, poor mental health, poor physical health than what we have in, in previous droughts. And that, that would feel really good, I think. If we can get to the stage where we've got the support and the um, resources there that people need to be able to stay doing what they want to do, living where they want to live and, and still have, you know, still have it a viable concern rather than, you know, literally killing them, that, that, that I think will be um, really good not just from my individual point of view but from national point of view because, we, you know, you can't have this situation where everybody's moving to the coast because mm. someone has to produce the food and someone has to manage the land and things like that. So that would be good if we can... Keep those communities <laughs> alive. Yep, exactly. The more investment, the better. We are a dry continent. Mm. We have to accept that and we need to if there are ways that technology can be used with innovation particularly with universities uh, working ahead, be it Newcastle University, be it the University of Southern Queensland, whoever is making leaps and bounds in this area, it, it would be fantastic. Me personally, as a farmer, I don't think that we'd be backwards in, in coming forwards to, to accept and embrace that type of technology in the region. So I look forward to it, quite frankly, I really do. As droughts intensify and agricultural communities across the country grapple with the emotional toll and economic strain that comes with it, safeguarding employability and well-being has never been more important. Farmers are not just food providers. They are the lifeblood of our communities and the stewards of our land. Ensuring their resilience and well-being benefits the whole of society. By investing in diversification programs, mental health support and innovative technologies that have the potential to make water insecurity a distant memory, we can empower our farmers to weather the toughest droughts and storms. We can equip them with the tools they need 
to adapt, evolve and thrive for centuries to come. This podcast is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the University of Newcastle, hosted by me, Shani Wellington. Produced by Kelsey Menzies, executive producer is Todd Stevens, with audio production by Kelly Fulston. Listener.